This is uh, Mike Hodges. Uh, I directed uh, Flash Gordon uh, some over 20 years ago. So uh, seeing it again is going to be uh, quite a trip for me. Um, it's difficult to explain the making of this film because it's unlike anything else I, or, I'd done up until that point or indeed since. Um, insofar as that usually one has sort of complete control over a film, but in this instance... Uh, because of the circumstances in which it was made, I uh, I really had to improvise it all the way through. Uh, largely because uh, uh, the, the whole of the production team were Italian, their English was terrible, my Italian is non-existent. So I, to a large degree, I didn't know what I was going to be doing each day. Uh, one of the one most wonderful things about making this film was actually having uh, Max von Sydow uh, who was an actor that I absolutely loved in all the Igmar Bergman films uh, as a young man. And it was kind of curious um, to see him in something so light. I must say he enjoyed it very much indeed. Sam J. Jones as Flash Gordon. We had great difficulty finding uh, someone like, uh, to, to play Gordon because uh, he's a curious character insofar as he's a bit thick actually as a, as a hero he's kind of um, a bit a bit dumb um, it's a bit like American foreign policy it always seems to me um, and therefore he's quite interesting and so far he really is the innocent abroad Onella Muti another wonderful actress I was also delighted to have in this film she uh, need to say came via Dino um, I'd never made a special effects film before, and by contemporary standards, um, of course, they are pretty crude. I love them, actually, because they are truly comic strip uh, in the way that they're, they're done. I think if they, were, if they were done now with computer images, it would be, wouldn't be anywhere near as effective. This title sequence, which you're seeing, uh, was done in New York um, and has actually taken from the, the original cartoons done by... Um, what do you remember his name? Uh, um, uh, Raymond, Alex Raymond. Alex Raymond, uh, done by Alex Raymond in the 30s. Um, so they did uh, this, I think, wonderful animated sequence at the beginning with, with uh, music by, uh, by Queen, which we'll talk about later on. So, in effect, the title sequence does suggest how the film itself was going to be made. I studied the strip cartoon um, very carefully, and all the framing of the film and all the vivid colours were basically taken straight, straight from, uh, from the, comic, uh, the original comic strip. Uh, I... To begin with, I was very confused as to how I was going to shoot it and make it in any way at all. Um, but my source was, in fact, the, the strip cartoon itself. I, I, uh, I hung on to it like grim death because it just 
dictated each shot and everything that was done. This is a sequence which is meant to be in England. It's the only location in the film, uh, and I, I shot this in Scotland, actually. Again, we had to improvise all of these uh, things. The storm and the and the uh, oh, there, by the way, is a very. He's now a very famous actor. This gentleman just coming. Who's going to uh, um, open the door of this van? He's now a very big star in England, and his name has escaped me again. What the hell's his name? Um, oh, Robbie Coltrane. You know who Robbie Coltrane is? So Robbie Coltrane is a tiny role here. Um, oh, and you'll see him uh, in a moment. I think the guy on my left was my chauffeur, actually, my driver. Melanie, uh, who plays Dale, is, I, I think, a wonderful wonderful in this actually again it was difficult to get somebody with the kind of naivety i mean the interesting thing really about the film is that that it's it, it captures the kind of naivety of the times in which the the strip cartoon was done there's robbie coltrane by the way, locking the door there he's now a big star um uh anyway so to capture the naivety and the innocence of those days and to get to cast uh, flash and to cast dell it was difficult really to find actors that would uh, that could represent that innocence All of these things were were made up as we as we went along, uh, truly. And the whole of uh, Ming's appearance, um, and the whole of the uh, everything that was done, I just would make it up literally on the spot. I had this great special effects team in London, and uh, I would, as I said earlier on, just improvise. I would just so suddenly when these two pilots disappear, they they've been sucked out through the through the through the window. I loved it. You, I sort of had to dance on my feet and use whatever whatever was available to me. Danilo Donati, who did the production design and the costumes, is a great production designer. But I, I you know, he, he he built sets and he did things really largely for himself, actually, and largely to satisfy his own creative needs. But often the costumes and often the sets were extremely difficult to make work in the film itself. So I would. As I say, have to improvise, and I'd make things up as I went along. I'd add bits of dialogue. Uh, so it was, it was, it was incredibly good fun actually to do because of that. And I think that if the film has anything which is a kind of, um, it's a, it's a souffle, and to make a souffle is is difficult. You have to have a sort of fairly light touch. And I think that the the. The energy of the film comes from the fact that we all had to improvise it as we as we went along. So there was we were never stuck with the with the with the with the script as such, and this went right the way through to, to everything virtually. And the, the the rudimentary story was there, um, but all of this was made up. When I started, we had absolutely no idea how we were going to do the uh, the skies, the atmosphere in which uh, the film takes place. And it wasn't until I was well into the film itself uh, did we solve that problem. 
The other thing was that Dino De Laurentiis really thought it was a serious film, which I found very puzzling. Uh, there's a story where he, uh, the, uh, the first scriptwriter, Michael Allen, was, who lived in Los Angeles, was uh, coming to London to meet Nick Rogue. And Dino said, you, could you come by the office? So uh, Michael said, it's, you know, his secretary, uh, Dino's secretary, rang up and said, look, I'm going to miss the flight. He's, no, Mr. Laurentiis said it's very important. So Michael goes to Rodeo Drive where Dino's office was, and uh, he's kept waiting, and then eventually he goes, and he thinks this must be the most important meeting, and he, Dino says, don't forget one thing. Flashy de Gordon, he saved the world. And really and truly, Dino uh, had a wonderful childlike quality, which I think, uh, again, is captured in the, in the film itself. But there was no way that you could make this film other than uh, as a tongue-in-cheek film. Um, here you have uh, Zarkov, you know, who's built his, uh, his rocket ship, his interplanetary rocket ship in a, in, a, in a conservatory. Now, when Alex Raymond did the original cartoons, from which this was indeed part of, um, you know, man, hadn't, we hadn't gone to the moon. We hadn't, there was no interplanetary travel whatsoever. So when I came to find this film, uh, to make this film, of course, everything had changed. Now, to make it at all believable, you just had to turn it into a kind of children's fable. You had to make it, um, you, you had to do, do it as tongue-in-cheek. And, and it was a kind of balancing act, really, that it was like a trapeze act, because you, uh, on the one hand, you were having fun with it, but on the other hand, you couldn't make fun of it, if that makes sense. So this balance between the Saturday morning cinema and the whole fun of, of, of going to these, uh, these films um, had to be kept, but also you had to keep it serious. It's, uh, so you had, to be, uh, you had to build the drama when it was necessary in the melodrama. And I, I must say, I did love doing that. It was, it was great fun and uh, gave a lot, a lot of people um, a great pleasure, I think, this film. This was all made up because, uh, again, to get the to get the character of Ming across and to get the danger of that that flash and the, the whole of the of the whole of our universe, uh, uh, I wanted to introduce Ming in the sky and this kind of godlike uh, godlike creature, evil godlike creature, um, who even at some point does take Flash to uh, you know one of his planets and offer him the whole world in much the same way as uh, Satan offered Jesus Christ. So there are all sorts of weird comparisons in this film uh, with, with Ming. Uh, the, the fact that uh, we don't need a Ming uh, to threaten the security of the world uh, is, of course, a joke, because we've got George Bush now doing that. Um, so uh, it's, it, it is rather interesting to see the naivety of these two young Americans uh, grappling with, uh, with cultures they have absolutely no concept of at all, which, as we all know, is part of the pattern of our existence these days. So whilst it's a, whilst it's a strip cartoon, uh, there is a kind of uh, a madness uh, about it, which uh, is sort of, sort of real, I suppose, now. Um, life has become more and more of a comic strip itself, and life itself has. 
Topol uh, gave us a lot actually in this film. And so, you know, again, he uh, captured the intense madness, and he did he did he did pitch it beautifully. I think in terms of being sort of demented, but also being a cartoon character. You all right? This is where you make things. I just put this hatch in the top of this plane because I, I kept thinking, how the hell am I going to get them out of this plane with, with any kind of dignity? So I just had a hatch cut in the top of it, which is totally preposterous, of course. And the whole business of getting them into, uh, into, into the capsule, I find rather delightful. One sort of worked it out in a way of making it believable that they actually are so dumb that they think it's a telephone kiosk. And that's how Zarkov gets them in there. The Lord knows why, but it seems not. A miracle. I expect you'd like to use my phone. Thanks, I would. Well, it's right in there. Listen, we've wrecked your place. I'm sure the insurance will oh, cover please it. don't mention Danilo um, did all the costumes, including uh, flashes. Um, and... <laughs> I really had to sort of keep an eye on this because he would... He had an inclination to get uh, Flash to wear Diamante uh, sweatshirts with plunging necklines. Um, and I had to sort of really make sure that Flash somehow or another kept hold of a kind of masculinity. Here we are in this, what they think is a telephone kiosk, and she's now recognized Zarkov. So uh, to make this whole sequence work and, and to keep the sort of comedic... Uh, side of it is 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 kind of funny all these fight sequences were we just worked out as we went along and i love the idea of flashes having his head banged on it so that in fact the the, the whole of this interplanetary rocket takes off but where up there where it's coming from i need one person to keep a foot on that red pedal during blast off you are the lighter sit down sam j jones it was discovered actually by Dino De Laurentiis' mother-in-law, Silvana Mangano's mother was an English woman, and she was watching television. And there was a, a, a show in America called Celebrity Squares, and she saw this sort of handsome-looking Hulk uh, sitting there, and uh, we uh, we tracked him down. And he'd been in the film, it was Zarkov's head, actually, wasn't it? I see now that it was Zarkov's head that actually sends it off on his own. Anyway, so um, so we tracked him down and it brought him over to London and I, he was just perfect. I mean, some, he wasn't a very good actor, but he, he got better and better as the film went on. And I think captured the kind of naivety of the hero himself. I love the sequence for, because of Queen's music which was another uh, wonderful element to, the, to this film. I must confess, it wasn't, I didn't choose. I, it, was, it was very embarrassing. Dino De Laurentiis actually uh, suggested Queen uh, to do the music. Uh, and when they came on the set to meet me, I was actually using Pink Floyd, which is slightly embarrassing. Anyway, so, uh, but, but I really had a great time with, uh, with Freddie Mercury and Brian May and Roger. Um, doing the music, and I think this is one of the most beautiful sequences, actually, which uh, which is when the music takes over as it, as the rocket ship goes into into a sort of black hole. Again, making all of this work on film, 
when we really didn't have the facilities, it was all done with blue backing. And uh, I mean, it's incredible to think of how things have changed in the last 20 years in terms of special effects. Um, and as I said earlier, I'm rather glad that it isn't as sophisticated as that and has a kind of cartoon quality. the way that one turns. <laughs> that point looks a bit, a bit naff. Here we go. So um, all of these things were created, all these special effects with the skies. Um, we've discovered a, a way of injecting colored inks or, or into water and shooting at a high speed. Um, so that we could then create all these moving skies, which I had sort of great time just putting into the blue backing that we, we had, uh, that we were shooting quite a lot of this material in. And so I was able to use all these things and just build up these sequences uh, from whatever material I was, I was offered. It always reminds me in the 60s of those oil slides used to get in clubs, actually. They used to sort of, when they got warm, they would sort of change. Uh, but I, I loved being able to keep the primary colors of the original strip cartoon. Uh, everything's so bland these days, everything's so colorless that it was really terrific to, to keep the strong... Uh, strong imagery all the way through and strong use of, of, of colors. I loved it. These are all model shots, of course. Um, but there you can see a perfect example of the skies going by. It's quite interesting to think that's just colored water, isn't it? Shot in slow motion. So as I was saying earlier, really, I was learning as I went along. I just... I just made it up and I, I shot for 17 weeks in the principal photography, all in studios apart from the sequence which you've seen on location. And I just, uh, I, you know, I would just invent things as, as I went along. I had this uh, great fight arranger uh, and he and I would work out well, quite a lot of sequences. I also got into get a troupe of about, I think it was about 12 actors and actresses, and just go through various movements with them. So I'd, he would turn them into, you know, he'd ask them to sort of act as a lion or as act as a snake or whatever, so that they could, that I could use them in all sorts of different roles, because I, as you'll see in a moment, there's all, there's all kinds of, of um, creatures in this, in, in Ming Kingdom. Uh, that I I uh, wanted to have that have that kind of versatility available to me. I kept pondering how on earth I was going to shoot Ming's uh, Ming's palace actually and make it different. And I came up with this idea of uh, this. Uh, uh, I suppose it was CCTV camera actually. It's a kind of security camera which follows them around above, which gave me a sort of different angle and gave it a kind of because we shot it on a bug-eye lens, it gave it a kind of uh, distortion, actually. There it is. 
Um, and I was, it was rather good, I think, in terms of you get this other angle. And it got me out of all sorts of problems in terms of, of, of special effects and things that you could... <laughs> look at the design of that. It's absolutely wild. <laughs> Makes me laugh. Sorry, and there's your there's your bug eye lens falling around. But it solved all of those problems, which were you know, which were where you had to show the power of Ming. That's pretty crude, isn't it? But still, there we are. Um, but, but of course, all of that nowadays would be just terribly easy to do. The this vast set which we built in Shepherd and Studios, uh, I think we were using pretty well every studio in London as we went along. But we used Elstree, we used Shepperton. Um, but this vast set, which was incredibly difficult for the uh, cameraman because of that deep red, they don't particularly like it. It just sucks up the light like nobody's business. And Gil Taylor, who was the uh, the director of photography, who'd also shot uh, Star Wars, uh, was the cameraman. Uh, he was loathing doing this set, and in fact, on the Monday that we were meant to start shooting it, uh, we got a phone call saying he'd fallen off his ladder over the weekend, uh, changing a light bulb, and he'd sprained his arm and wouldn't be able to come in, so we had to get uh, another cameraman in to shoot this extremely difficult sequence. Um, here you see Dan Danilo Donati's immense talent uh, in terms of the costumes. I just think they're, they're just wonderful and absolutely mad. How They're all handmade, and they're all made of all these materials. I'm very interested in terms of how one introduces characters um, and I love this entrance of Ming. Max, you know, I'd always seen in all these, I mean, he played Death, for example, in uh, The Seventh Seal, and I, he'd always been in these incredibly serious films, and to release him in some way into this completely, <laughs> uh, complete uh, caricature of an evil, evil emperor, um, he, he just plainly loved doing it. Uh, Peter Wingard is a British actor. I ch chose, he was to be a big, big TV star. And he, unfortunately, that career had ended. But he had this amazing voice, so I wanted, that's why I cast Peter for that, because you never see his face. There is James Bond, um, Tim Dalton. This before he was, uh, before he became Bond, of course. And Brian Blessed, bless him, uh, is an actor uh, who's enormous energy. Um, and I'd made a film years before with Michael Caine and Mickey Rooney, and Mickey Rooney as a character had died in the film. And I, and I, the film sort of missed his energy at the end. So I decided that I'd never make that mistake again. So I got Brian Blessed, who had the same kind of energy as Mickey Rooney, and who carries the film right through to the end. So, so I had this kind of a blazing energy, which is a bit like the rocket ship itself, carrying the film to its, uh, its, its, uh, its final, uh, final shots. So that's Clytus. I think I've got his mask somewhere at home. Um, now, of course, the Hawkmen, as you can imagine in those days, uh, without it, you know, with such limited special effects, these wings and uh, and the fact that I was going to be facing this massive air battle later on was fairly daunting, I can tell you. Anyway, we eventually cracked it. We tried all sorts of damn silly things to sort of make the wings move. We had mechanical machines make other things, and then they'd fall off. And then, in the end, we just put them on wires, and and we had wires attached to the wings, and we just uh, we just uh, you know just moved them up and down, and then we'd remove the wires. 
uh, you know, optically. Um, and so we were able to put our battle scenes together. Uh, the sort of it's kind of interesting the way that one sort of went went along. Uh, I remember shooting this thing and this this, this royal prince. And he gets he gets a, 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 a sword. Is he's impaled upon his own sword, and I suddenly thought, why don't why does everyone have to have red blood? Why don't we just have different coloured blood? So I made his blood blue. I seem to remember it was either blue or green. We'll wait and see what happens in a minute. So when anyone died or whenever there was blood, I just just changed it. You know. Max is enjoying himself so much, exercising his fingers. Now, I forgot my chance to see what colour blood it is. I think it's blue, actually, because he was an aristocrat or something. Yes, it's blue. I was right after all. Look at those costumes, aren't they wonderful? We're about to come uh, to a sequence which, in the original script, was a was a serious fight with Flash and uh, the Ming guards and everything, which I turned into a kind of into a kind of ballet, really. Uh, the character of, of Flash is meant to be a football player, an American football player. Um. And I, so uh, the the fight actually then becomes a kind of parody of, of of American football, where he calls all the all the numbers and all the formations, which confuses, of course, Ming's guard who are not conscious of how American football is played. Hey, and that was Fellini on the leash. And it's uh, I'm afraid I was a bit cheeky in that because uh, Ornella Muti uh, bringing on this little. Uh, little midget refers to him as Fellini. I'm somewhat ashamed about that. I, I got to work with Federico uh, Fellini uh, about, I don't know, three or four years later because I uh, I did the English version of a film on the ship sails on, which was a film I particularly loved. Um, and I, I was l lucky enough to you know, spend quite a lot of time with him. Um, and I did lo I loved so many of his films. And of course, I and I'd, I'd worked now with his production designer, who did I, you know, he did a film uh, called Casanova, which I, I is a is a really terrific film, in my opinion. Danilo did quite a lot of that, so I talked a lot to Danilo about how they did that. Very theatrical designer. I mean, you could only use him in certain ways, I think, frankly, but. Uh, but but brilliant and inventive and a really wonderful man. Great, made great pasta as well. God, I ate really well when I was with Denise. <laughs> um, but I don't think he ever read the script actually. <laughs> so he give me he give me costumes and things. I'll show, I'll tell you when I come to them later on, which were almost unworkable. Um, but it but then it would tax my inventiveness in terms of how to make everything work. This ring, I don't know where the hell that idea came from, but I, I think I just had this idea that, was, that, would be, that optically it was something we could do within reason, which is to make it sort of uh, uh, appear to have sort of magic powers. And, uh, and uh, uh, so I, uh, I started using that. There's a very odd element to Flash Gordon. I, when I talk to my American friends, I, 
I was astonished to find, well, not actually, but astonished to find that a lot of their sexual fantasies came from the strip cartoon in particular. Um, and uh, that they were serious, that, that they were, you know, that they really did love Dale and uh, Princess Aura. And of course, the way that they were drawn uh, were overtly sexual. Um, so Flash Gordon has this kind of uh, undercurrent of sexuality, which uh, which was a great advantage in a sense when it came to the cinema, because it meant that adults, i.e. the parents who took their children, could also have a great time, because there's a lot of sexual innuendo, uh, particularly with the character of uh, Ornella Muti, and there again with um, with with uh, with Ming and uh, and Dale. This is the, the the fight sequence, which turns into a kind of parody of American football. Oh, excuse me. Um, which Sam, of course, was wonderful at doing. I mean, he was a big, big, big man, and he was able to sort of play this thing. That was improvised. Uh, well, what happens is that Bill Rhodes and I uh, worked out a sequence, uh, which was never in the script at all. There, there was a, uh, another uh, Dino, uh, an Italian Dino, whom I'm not going to comment on where he, what his perceptions were, but he came to see this and he was one of Dino's friends and let's put it this way, his, his pocket bulged. Um, uh, and I'm not quite sure what his connections are. Anyway, he was horrified when he saw this because he expected a straightforward fight. Um, and you had this... Uh, this uh, this parody, but we did. I mean, Bill and I worked out the whole sequence before. You couldn't shoot. You couldn't just improvise that. But we had worked it out before. Well, I mean, the rudiments of it were there, and then I started adding things like Brian Blessed banging them on the back of the head, uh, and then them calling them over and saying, "This is some new strange game, says Clydus," and they sort of go off to 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 do it. God, it brings back such lovely memories. It was, it was a very hard, well, it was a hard film to make physically for me um, because there was a lot to, to get through. Um, but I did have such fun doing it, I must say. I think we all did. And the music contributed an awful lot to this. So what happened was that, that with regard to the music, Queen had done some rough tracks. They all worked in, independently. Brian May would do some 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 of the tracks, and then and and Freddie and Roger, and then they would give them to me, and I would sort of place them really into where I thought they would work within the film. And then when we when the film was completed, we then did it to the film. But of course, it was all done in in uh, in with. Please. What is the word expression? Laying, you know, laying tracks, laying whole loads of different tracks, so that uh, Freddie would come in and lay lay his tracks. Then Brown would come in and Roger would come in. Um, uh, it was a killing process for me um, because, as with most rock bands, they didn't start until about two o'clock in the afternoon, but then they go through till eight or nine o'clock the following morning. Uh, which I so I had 21 days of this, uh, which was incredibly exciting. But I had to be there the whole time. If I wasn't there, something usually went disastrously wrong. Um, Fly back to your kingdom. You may see me sooner than you think. This is another uh, sequence which I 
I mean, when we sort of just go through, because of an awful lot of... Uh, well, I should, maybe I should tell you how, what happened when I was originally asked to make it. I was still unconvinced that I was the right director. I, I really was, and terribly reluctant to do it. Anyway, so Dino uh, said he wanted to fly me over to New York to meet Danilo Donati, and uh, he said, come on, Concord. So I'd never been on Concord before, and it's a bit like a flying cigar box. Anyway, and in those days, pretty well everybody in the, uh, on Concord were businessmen. So I got on Concord, and uh, all the businessmen opened their briefcases and took out you know, the computer readouts. And, of course, I opened my briefcase and brought out uh, the bumper edition of Flash Gordon. I must say, everyone was looking at me like I was... Uh, I, I was retarded in some way, um, but of course none of them knew that I was actually working. So I would go through, uh, you know, l l there's a very big volume of of, uh, of these strip cartoons, and I go through and I just pluck out different images, like the one Flash's execution, which I think you're about to see. We've seen it. No, you know, we're about to see it with all the yellow gases coming out. And, uh, you know, you would just, uh, uh, this helmet which he has, I mean, I came across in one of them. There was so, the, the original strip cartoon was so rich in terms of, um, I like this bit of perversity. There's the, the, uh, the time machine where the sands run up as opposed to down on normal, uh, normal uh, physical um, uh, sense in, in, in other planets. But, of course, we're out in a world of complete fantasy, um, which is alien, so we can do anything we like. I hope I remember the trick when I wake up. The love story between Flash and Dale, of course, is terribly sort of cod. Um, it's not my forte at all, but again, I, you know, I, because it's so so cod, it kind of it kind of works. And if you've got some little fellow like that looking out at this uh, this uh, strange love scene, um, uh, it, it sort of makes it work. I think actually. Um, and there is such a strange sexual quality about the 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 shot. There's a sort of slightly sadomasochistic element to looking at it again. Uh, and there's a lot of that actually. This undercurrent uh, of uh, of un unusual sexual practices. Here she goes to try and turn time back to reverse it. Of course, she can't. So all of these very low angle shots are absolutely straight out of the original original comic. Um, I loved. I, I, I've shot an awful lot of funerals in my feature films over the years. The Get Carter's funeral, Pulp, is the best funeral I ever shot. This is the second best, or maybe it's the best one. I don't know. But the first uh, out of the first five films I ever made, there was there was quite considerable funeral sequences. Maybe it's because I'm obsessed by death and because I was brought up as a Catholic, maybe. Anyway, these kind of the rituals of the funeral fascinate me. And of course, I was really able to indulge it here. Um, uh, yet again, Stanley Liebel, who plays this, uh, Dino could never understand how I could choose anyone who's such an unusual face, who is meant to be uh, Princess Aura's lover or one of her numerous lovers. Um, he was quite horrified that I chose Stan to play this role. 
Um, but I did it because I think the film is so, so sort of filled with these perverse characters that if you had a conventionally good-looking person other than Flash himself, uh, it, would, it would spoil it. So this is the execution again, which I, I seem to remember I found in one of the one of the comics, which is the poison gas in inside this strange uh, uh, capsule. I love Ornella's reading of this line. I've just it's all coming back to me actually when she sees uh, Dale crying. She asks Ming, "What is this thing?" He says, "Tears." Max gives it a wonderful voice. He says, "It's a sign of weakness," uh, which has got a sort of element of truth to it, in terms of the, that people think that, that it is a sign of weakness, but it needn't necessarily be. And what is lovely about this again is that the the gas, which sort of uh, escapes into this uh, capsule is, is yellow. It's another primary color. So you've got all these people dressed in black. <laughs> and there it comes. And again, the music, I think, carries this uh, wonderfully. I, Queen did such a great job, I must say. Peter Wingard had a thing about this handkerchief. I never quite understood what it was. Again, it was kind of had a kind of sort of strange connotation. What a weird thing to do to pick the handkerchief up that you just waved to signal the death of of Flash and then smell it. It seems to be such an odd little moment. Yeah. The film is filled with all these odd little moments. I love. It. It's also very funny there when you think about it that the. The uh, catafalque has got the logo for Flash Gordon as if it was <laughs> as if it was an engraving. I hadn't noticed that until now, actually. It's uh, it's uh, funny, I think. This is uh, Stanley Liebel, and this is the uh, he gives her a kiss, um, which uh, and as I said, he's meant to be. Oh, that was a nice touch. I always thought having that the the mirror reflection in the top of the in the top of the catafalque, so it's a little so that I could see. It was a way of being able to see Flash Gordon inside the coffin as well at the same time. Ornella's costumes are so outrageous, I must say. Stuff of, of fairy tales, isn't it? Kissing the prince and he'll come alive again. From the dead. Sam had such an innocence that was uh, about him. You see, it's also useful having that mirror on the back of the of the coffin lid, actually, um, so that I can shoot and still have another give me another another kind of dimension. And uh, what's I going to say? Oh, I've forgotten. Don't worry, I won't look. I like you a lot. Again, it gave me another shot that she could take a look at him uh, when she thinks he's taking his trousers down or pulling him up or whatever he was doing. Where are you taking me? To the moon Arboria. I don't want to go to any moon. I've got to rescue my friends and save the Earth. 
Now look at Sam's costumes. He, we managed to get him into. Oh, he's that's right. He's in disguise. Yes. What's in Arborea? People who help you. People carry out. Prince Baron does anything I ask. God, this is a. In, this was never in uh, in uh, uh, in the cartoon. The actual machine for extracting the brain was in there, but I'd done a sequence. Um, in some documentaries that I'd made in the 60s with, with, uh, with time-lapse photography. And uh, I'd been a producer of an arts program called Tempo, and we used it a lot. And the person, one of the directors who was working with me, I was the producer and one of the directors, but who did a lot of it was a guy called Dennis Possel. So I asked Dennis to do this insert, which you're about to see, which is the supposed extraction of Zarkov's brain. And I think he did a brilliant, uh, brilliant job on this, actually. It's a little bit later now. We've got to uh, wait a bit. There's another wonderful actress. Uh, look at Max. I enjoy that. God, his eyebrows. Hours it took to do this makeup every day. You're saying? Um, the actress, Maria, Maria Angeli, what is the name? Italian actress. Um, I thought it might you got the cast list? No, don't worry. Um, she was in Swept Away. Very Angela. Proceed with it. Here she comes. She's wonderful. I love doing this. Oh, that's. What are you doing? Clytus, that's right. His assistant is. Oh, we're just emptying your mind. What? We are going to empty your memory. There she is. As oh, she's fabulous. Doctor. No. Don't do that. Please, I beg you. You see the shooting all the time. It is straight out of the strip cartoon. The angles again, time and time again, when used sort of wide angle lenses and low angles and different angles. Here we go. Here's the brain extraction done by Dennis. So it's a lot of time lapse photography, and of course it. It's, it goes back to, to Topol's own existence, actually, being a Jewish and the persecution and the, the war and the whole range of, of, of things which were extracted. I, 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 it's, I, I think it sits rather well in the film in an odd kind of way, um, insofar as that it's... You believe it. What else would you do to extract somebody's memory of uh, of one's life except these moments? Well, I love the way it goes back to his birth, actually, which, of course, would be applied to all of us. I didn't realise this at the time. I was driving one day home to my home in the country and uh, there was a, a programme on epilepsy. And uh, they said that, whoever well, was talking about it, said that, that people who'd been to see Flash Gordon when they saw the sequence were, were uh, prompted to, to have attacks. I, I just didn't realise that at the time. <laughs> Um, so with, with uh, that kind of fast cutting, uh, it could have a, you know uh, an effect upon them, which is sort of odd when you think of Zarkov's brain being extracted and then somebody else's brain being affected by what they're actually witnessing. 
be able to manage without. Mariangela Malati. She's wonderful. Begin to reprogram. That, that extra there, actually, is Jack Cardiff's son. That's Jack Cardiff's son. Jack Cardiff is a very great British cinematographer. Uh, forgive me for rambling on like this, because all these memories come back to me. I haven't seen it for over 20 years. There's another perfect example of one of the skies that we created. You see all those different colours that, that are in there. Again, another sort of strange sexual sequence, which, uh, which children wouldn't get because it's, it's so exotic looking, um, but, has a, but has all sorts of sexual undertones, well, overtones, actually, come to think of it. What's that? That's the planet Aquila. Did you ever think about Barbarella? No. Is it uh, the costumes? Mm -hmm. now it what that costume is it? Over Phrygia, the next moon rising. Again, you shot the sequences in the uh, in the studio with blue backing, and then I could put whatever whatever we liked behind there. So it was all the time. It was just. It was such fun, actually, doing it. And the post-production was fun, after one had finished the initial shoot. So I shot for 17 weeks principal photography, and then we didn't... We'd had a second unit, but it hadn't really worked out. Um, so I did then all the second unit, uh, which, for another 17 weeks, uh, which was just as interesting as doing uh, as doing the principal photography because one was experimenting all the time and finding ways of making things work. Melanie was a feisty girl. I liked her a lot, actually. Um, I, think, I think after this, she married a stockbroker and lives in New York as well, what I gathered. It'll make your nights with Ming more agreeable. Will it make me forget? No. But it will Again, Danilo Donati's costumes. Look at them, they're so exotic, so amazing. There seems to be an anecdote about sewing of the costumes by cheap labor. Is that true? Um, a lot of Italian craftsmen were came in to, uh, to England. I, 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 whether they were paid properly or not, I have absolutely no idea. They were all looked after, and they seemed very happy. They were incredibly hardworking and rather wonderful people. I mean, this is a suburb of London, and suddenly there's an influx of incredibly clever, you know, uh, uh, craftspeople, um, sculptors and uh, costumiers and seamstresses and... Um, and there were people that Danilo could trust. And of course, all the materials were, you know, were expensive. Uh, like leather, there was no fake leather, it was all real leather. Um, it's all, I, I can't account for this, it was not my responsibility. Dino loved Danilo. Um, he just, uh, he, you know, he could do no wrong for, for, for Dino. Um, and I love Danilo as well, but I, I, I think some of the uh, <laughs> some of the expense was a little unnecessary. 
however, that wasn't my responsibility. I have no idea what the film cost to this day. I don't think it was anywhere near as much as, uh, as Dino uh, said when we came to sell the film at the end. Um, so, but it was not my responsibility. It was bizarre making a film, you know, where you had no idea of, of what the cost, and you had absolutely no control over the film. Uh, whereas pretty well, well, every film I've ever made, I've had very tight control over how, you know, how it's made and what the budget is and everything. But this one, I, I, to begin with, I struggled to try and control it. And I just realized that I just had to relax and just let go and just enjoy the process. Uh, it was like surfing, you know, and, and just learning as I went along. And uh, that was, that was just, I was, was lucky one I was able to do that and I, I like I like working fast and I like improvising I like making things up as I go along if I can on film and I very rarely I mean I, I don't storyboard uh, there were storyboards done for this but they weren't I never really used them I and mean, they were um, uh, you know you, you couldn't you couldn't really except for complicated sequences like uh, where you were using blue backing sometimes maybe it would, you would have to but even then, by the time you'd learned how the process worked and what you could do and what you couldn't do in terms of foreground action, um, you, you didn't need them. And there was no way that you could use them, frankly. Storyboarding is about nervousness. I think that uh, when people get, you know, don't really know what they're going to do, they get nervous and they start storyboarding and then they stick to the storyboards and that gives the film a kind of rigidity, in, in my opinion. Um, so uh, the storyboards were done, I suppose, because uh, Dino and, and I, I suppose, in a sense, were nervous about how to actually make the film. I mean, I really, I, I, looking back, I truthfully... I never thought that we would, uh, the film would be finished and that it would ever be, uh, would ever see the light of a cinema projector. So it, it was delightful to see that it was actually going to be made. This is a typical example of what I'm talking about with Danilo. He built this enormous set, the biggest stage at Shepperton, not a sound stage, but so but vast, where he built Arborea. Now, the set itself is only about eight trees. I mean, each of these trees are, you know, a, cons a considerable width, about twice the size of the studio that I'm sitting in. Um, so they're massive. So whilst it looked amazing, uh, I would I went in there with, with uh, Dino, and, I sit, and Dino said, hey, fantastic, it looks fantastic. And I say, yeah, Dino, but... Where am I going to put the camera? How am I going to, you know, get far enough back to, to give it the size that you, 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 that we need for our Boria? And of course, uh, we did it optically in the end. Uh, we had to. We used a glass shot again. It was all very primitive, um, but there was no way. And the first day we went into Arboria, of course, I was right. I, you couldn't get the crane in. You couldn't get the camera in. And I didn't shoot anything for the first day that we were there until we got to grips with the with the set itself. Now the set was built uh, by Danilo uh, because he loved it and he wanted to see it built. Now this is a typical instance. So here you see Dale in the script. She's meant to uh, uh, meant to beat up these these 
pig man. She's meant to do karate chops and, you know, all the rest of it. So Danilo provides her with a costume which is metal. That's incredibly heavy, right, with high-heeled shoes. No way could she do it. So I made it up where she built, where she used the shoes as a kind of prop. So she moves the shoes around with her the whole time. So, I, again, it was just improvised. And the pig men, you see the, the ones that she's firing at. Now, when these characters came onto the set the first time, they couldn't see where they were going. They're bumping into the set. So, again, I used them uh, and gave them a kind of pig noises in the soundtrack. But I also used them as if they couldn't see. Um, so they're blind. Um, so this whole sequence is built up a... a, a despite Danilo's wonderful-looking costumes, but totally impractical ones. Um, so I built the shoes up, and I built up the blind blind pig men from 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 what he offered me. It's a sort of perfect example of what I'm, I'm saying. That there was no way that I could control it. They would just turn up on the set. I'd see a drawing, but... Uh, and then I'd just have to, have to use them. Activate Agent Zarkov. Then I liked the the security police sort of section of, of Ming's kingdom with its grayness, so that the, the other costumes, so that you have this kind of Nazi uh, Gestapo kind of feeling to all of this this um, this part of the film, which contrasts nicely with the with the with the with the colours of all the other sections. Let me think a moment. Unseal the city. Allow to exit with Agent Zarkov. Peter Wingard, who plays the whole role behind uh, behind that mask, um, we became friends, and I really I really like Peter a lot. Uh, but of course, he's never seen, and he was dying to be seen, and he dies at the end of the film. And he, <laughs> Michael, could I have a word with you? Sorry, it's fine. Is there any chance of, as I die, because I'll lift the mask off? And I said, absolutely, out of the question, Peter. I'm not... <laughs> you lift the mask off at the end there. So poor Peter, we never see his face. We just hear his voice. No matter to whom the trail leads. I sit at nothing! Clytus is not in the comic strip. No, it's true, actually. He was, I've forgotten he was a fictional... Now, there's a, that's a glass shot, you see. That's not, in, that's not part of the set. What's that over there? No, Clytus was not in the... Uh, I don't know where he... I think he came from Michael Allen's script, actually. Um, so he's a hangover from, from Nick Rogue's uh, film. It's interesting to think what Nick's film would have been like. It would have been so different. Uh, he's a wonderful director. It would have been... Uh, probably a better film, but it would just mean different. It wouldn't have been a strip cartoon, that's for sure. And I think Flash probably had to be a strip cartoon. I don't think that, um, you know, I think it is the one true... Oh, look, there's John Osborne, my, who's a great British playwright, and I had him, he looks like he's jerking off, actually. He never knew that, but I did. it's another sort of sexual <laughs> reference, actually, which made me laugh. But uh, I had John, and he agreed to play this. Uh, uh, yeah, and this is a man who's written some major British plays and who wrote some wonderful screenplays, of course, including uh, Tom Jones um, and Charge of the Light Brigade. 
Anyway, he was in Get Carter, my first feature film. We became friends and he agreed to play Old Green Man. <laughs> He's dead now, sadly. He was going to be in my last film, but he wasn't able to make that. Um, so when I couldn't shoot in Arborea, um, John and I just sat in his Winnebago and talked all day, which was kind of nice. This creature was kind of interesting to do. It's, it's very odd when you're, when you're doing... Uh, uh, a film, especially a children, well, you you never quite know what the effect you're going to have upon people. But of course, I suppose in a this sequence, I've met a lot of uh, young people who've never forgotten this sequence. You know, it is they find it so scary, and of course, it is actually. But when you're shooting it, you just don't think in those terms because you know that it's 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 unreal. Or oh, there's some sort of <laughs> nasty green stuff. Green blood. Oh, God, it makes me laugh looking at it. Anyway, so Arborea, they had green blood. I'm just remembering that now. Timothy Dalton, I, um, I remember looking at him on camera the first time. I thought, this guy is a major star because he's so, he looked like Errol Flynn in this film with his moustache. And uh, I'd only seen him in character roles. He was in a Michael Apted film called Agatha with uh, Vanessa Redgrave, and they, they'd lived together for many years. And um, he played Colonel Christie, the British writer called Agatha Christie. And uh, he was wonderful, actually, because he's playing a man about 50, and I'd never seen him in anything else until he, was, he agreed to be in Flash Gordon. Whoa. Yeah, Sam, I'm going back to the kind of innocence which he had. There was there's a fight sequence at the end, and uh, I run out of ideas, and we had one particular, we had to dispatch somebody, and uh, the first assistant said, well, why doesn't Sam come up behind and hit him with a, this, with a, this crowbar or whatever he had? And Sam J. Jones was horrified. He just turned around and very angrily said, Flash Gordon would never do a thing like that. He'd never hit anybody from behind. So this guy was in character, I tell you. <laughs> you are playing with fire, Aura. Of course I am. So we're about to see uh, another interesting person in this film. It's called Richard O'Brien. Um, he's in the cage where... Uh, we're about to go. Is it? Oh, God, look at that. It's a rather naff old special effect, wasn't it? It's a nice little lurch as it came away from Ming's palace. So I'll talk about Richard O'Brien before we get to Richard O'Brien wrote, wrote the Rocky Horror Show. And uh, he's a curious sort of character. He was an actor before. And uh, he. Uh, He's Hawkman. Here he is. He's in this cage, as far as I remember. Oh, they drop him down. God, this is... Oh, he's in there. That's right. Um, Ming is the enemy of every creature on Mongo. So Richard had already uh, written Rocky Horror Show. Of course, it was a show that had been put... It's now pretty well everywhere. Um, and uh, he, too, agreed to be in this uh, film. So he became a, a, a friend. This is all stuff I think that 
goes back to my own childhood when I went to the, the cinema, the quicksands and murky waters and things like that, the sort of Tarzan films, which I'd really kind of, I'd always loved. Now, this is, this is very curious, this scene. Bring on the boar worms. Again, look at Ornella Moose. What a incredible-looking one. <laughs> so, the, again, this sort of the sexual side of it, no, no, not the ball worms. It amuses me. No. Another lover of yours. Your jealousy of me has made you mad. Everybody remembers this scene. I'm not surprised. Confess, and we won't hurt you anymore. We don't like doing this at all. I remember puzzling on it how to to to. to, to to shoot it, actually. Where did Anella? Was she going to be tied to a post? Or I, I can't remember how I came up. I think we just had it there. I think it was the catafalque. In fact, it is. It's, so I said, we'll lay in. We'll lay her on top of it. It's much better. Um, and then these grips that, that are holding her hands go back to the beginning of the film with that, with that, uh, the golden version, uh, which Flash is thrown is, is thrown over by when it grips his his wrist at the beginning of the film. So, I mean, it was, it was just bizarre looking at it again, how all these things sort of emerged. So now we had those left over, so we just tacked them on top of the uh, of the catafalque, and uh, that's how Ornella's apparently held down. Uh, there you go again, you see. I mean, that was a glass shot. This is There's Richard O'Brien playing <laughs> uh, on the right there. So that now is the set, but of course all the the, the, the real shots that give the size of the place is uh, are all glass shots actually. So when I got to grips for the set, I was able to shoot uh, certain certain sequences, but I could never get far enough back to actually show you how amazing the set was. There is. I'm sorry, Flash. I'm finished. No, you're not. Get up. Look. Look, someone's coming. Send him over. Hurry up. Hold on. It's no good, Flash. I can't hold on. Yes, you can. Go on, get in. In. Sleep well, you traitor. We hang you in the morning. Remember that Richard O'Brien, who is bald, came up on the inside of this thing and cracked his head and cut it rather badly. I think he's ever forgiven me for that, actually. I stole a key to this cage. We'll need weapons to cross the swamp. They're stored in the temple. I could never make a film like this again. It would be true bizarre. So every day I just go in there and all these extraordinary things I just shoot. It was wonderfully... Uh, Funny, fun thing to do. Max is so superb as Ming. His walk, his delivery. Perhaps we will marry her to someone worthy of her treacherous nature. Your Majesty, how can I express my gratitude? Were you interested in all the, the comment on fascism and Nazi and the 30s? Me? Mm. I, of course I was interested in, um, in uh, fascism and the Nazis. I was 
you know, I was a young man when the war broke out, so I was only, what was I, seven when war started. And you saw what horrors that they performed. You never thought they would ever happen again because we were wrong. It's always there. Um, so, yes, but I did, Alex Raymond, the cartoons weren't about that, were they? Or did they touch on it? I suppose that there was, under, again, an under, uh, underlying feeling. Uh, and there were elements of this which I suppose could be drawn as a parallel. Um, it certainly came out in the, the, the extracting of Zarkov's uh, memory. Um, and in a way, when you were in any kind of repressive regime, which is what Ming is, um, you could sort of say that he stands for it for every, every kind of repressive regime. Again, all of these things were, were just made up. This was an incredibly hard set to shoot, actually, because it was so hot, we needed so much light in there. And again, you know, the, the whole of the, 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 the sort of sequence with um, Brian's one. Brian really comes into his element. This is what I was saying right at the end of the film. You really do need that kind of energy to carry it through. And also because it is so tongue-in-cheek, it is, you know, lines like we've only got one and a half minutes to save the world and all the rest of it. You, the whole of this has really taken the film back to the Saturday morning cinema and the strip cartoons. Um, and it had to have that kind of energy. You just had to go for it. That's, that's the only way I think you could play, play it. Where are the weapons? Feel one. Do you know where you are? Up the creek. You have trespassed where only a tree man may enter. A stranger in this temple must try the wood beast or die. That figures. Dino's belief in this film was, as I again, he he was he was good for me. I mean, I'm a terribly cynical old fella. Um, and Dino's childlike quality, even though he's, he was older than me and still is, um, was very very sort of important. Actually, I think he sort of, I mean, he didn't tell me how to direct or anything, but I just realised that. That Let's do it. that childlike sort of innocence, which he loved about Flash Gordon, was an essen uh, an essential ingredient. Uh, so I never, whilst I had fun with it, I never laughed at it. I think it's, it was sort of he was very important in a way, although uh, it was sort of subconscious in a, in a way. You scared? He was a. Extraordinary, is an extraordinary man, Dino. I became very fond of him. We had a terrible falling out at the beginning of the picture. Um, he'd watched some rushes and I left the film. Um, he, <laughs> when Nick uh, Rogue was uh, left the film, Dino called me Nick for about three months, I think. He, he'd forget that I was Mike Hodges. So when I left the film, he called for his line producer and said, hey, bring in a list of directors. So he gets the list of directors, comes in, and uh, the line producer shows him. And he says, get me this one. He points to Mike Hodges. <laughs> so uh, the line producer said, uh, we, he's the one who's just left, you know. So there are all sorts of hysterical. So in the middle of all the madness of shooting Flash Gordon, I turned to 
him one day and I said, you know, Dino, why, why did you choose me for this film? I mean, he was determined to get me to do it. I mean, it's very, very odd. And I thought he'd say, oh, hey, I love your film. I love I get a cut. I love uh, Terminal Man. I love, you know, uh, Pulp. I love all your films. And so he didn't say anything. Like, just turned to me and said, I like your face. <laughs> so I thought, my God almighty, if you choose to directly just because you like his face. Uh, so there's a kind of peasant quality to him, you know. It's a, it's uh, he just liked my face, but he was always reputed to actually uh, like to look at the pilot's face of any plane that he went. So if he didn't like the look of it, he wouldn't take off in it. Like, it's a sort of very primitive thing about him, and uh, he was kind. In many ways, he was the perfect producer for this uh, because of that that quality, and and it is an odd. A strip cartoon in many ways. Um, when he was trying to get the money for it, he uh, he got had Danilo put out this big display, you know, of all the uh, massive drawings that Danilo did. I mean, we're talking uh, six, eight-meter drawings, you know, of sets and various things. Um, and we had some of the costumes built and things like that. So there was a... a a display for, what's his name, Charlie, the head of, oh, and it was a big Hollywood executive coming out, who's Dino absolutely adored. And Dino, whose English was not very good, um, asked me to show this guy around. Dino was with me. But uh, so in the process of doing it, I said, you know, this is like a, Iran. Iran was the big enemy in those days. Now it's Iraq, of course, but in those days it was Iran. So the executive said to me, what do you mean? So I said, well, it's a kind of, you know, Ming's territory is a sort of mixture of, of uh, high technology and medieval sort of, and medieval technology as well. So you had this kind of combination of, of lethal weapons being in the hands of people who um, you know, who might use them in all sorts of injudicious ways. So uh, there is that kind of quality. This guy really thought that was very perceptive. <laughs> and there is that kind of quality. It's a kind of uncertainty about everything. And look at Flash here, for example. Suddenly he, look, he thinks he's out of one trap and something else happens. Um, and you do, it has that kind of, uh, that that sort of, of of quality of of societies and sort of cultures that you just don't comprehend um that also have uh elements to them which we've long ago lost uh, you know hundreds of years ago combined with incredibly effective and dangerous technology so there is a sort of again a kind of um oh, I do love that. look at that spaceship isn't it it's a, like a Owl sitting out there, and I like I, I like this bit. Sorry, I'm, I do enjoy this. <laughs> it's Clytus's sleeping arrangements. I do. I love that. Anyway, there we are. Excuse me for waking you. So we're now getting into the the, the final act of this film, which is uh, is the big aerial battle. Um, What's our arrival time at Valton's kingdom? Estimating sixteen. Which again, you know, to get the the numbers of Hawkmen up there again, it was really primitive by the side of what you can do nowadays. But uh, we'd shoot against blue backing, 
Um, and then we had all these Hawkmen, including Brown Blessed and everyone on wires, again, also against blue backing. So we then take them, a bit like taking a transfer, and uh, you put it onto the blue backing, and then behind that you then put uh, the skies. So, uh, and then you put layers of, of Hawkmen, uh, which nowadays, of course, it would be very easy to do, but in those days it was complicated. Yes, and... Who do you choose to fight? Him. This place is a lunatic asylum. I wonder where we're being taken now. I'm calculating. What? Time remaining before the moon crashes on Earth. I'd say, very roughly, 14 hours, 9 minutes and 20 seconds. Oh, God. We haven't even found... Flash! Oh, oh, it's so crazy. Last time I saw you, I prayed it was a dream. This time I'm praying it's not. Are you okay? I am now. Me too. Boy, have I got some crazy stories to tell you. Oh, yes, I, I kind of... I found it interesting having all these hawkmen there. And a lot of them were the... Were the the group that I'd had all the way through who when, could now do bird, you know, they had little tiny movements that you could do with, with birds. This was an incredibly hard sequence to shoot. It was just so in, so hot and so exhausting because of, the, because of the lights, as I said earlier. Bressid drives this wonderfully in terms of his energy and the kind of cod the hell? I think this came out of the car. I'm sure it came out of the uh, the cartoon, although I don't remember the uh, the knives coming out in any of the strip cartoon. None of this is exactly my forty. I, I think fights are almost as boring to shoot as love scenes, actually. Um, but to give it something different was 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 it was interesting. I sort of found it sort of fun with the with the knives and then giving. Um, Brian, the, uh, what do you call those things when you've got it for a television set? What are they called? No. <laughs> I still see, you know, Brian Bless is an extraordinary character. Um, he, he went, he climbed Everest without oxygen, came back, he's a big, strong man, and he came back looking like a a weed, he'd lost so much weight. I think he's doing it again now, even as I sit here. But he's a, he's an extraordinary guy. He's a black belt at judo as well. Uh, but I did enjoy him. He was he was great fun, as you can see, to work with. He was there's a lot of theatre work. He was in Cats in London for, for a long, long time. I think they were supposed to fight naked. Oh, uh, no, um, chest, bare, bare-chested in the script. Oh, uh, maybe. I, it would have been rather unfortunate, I think. Um, I, I've no idea why they weren't, whether that was so. I, I can't answer that. Sorry, it's too long ago. <laughs> I, and I hardly read the script anyway. I love you, but we only have 
So all of this, really, the the only way you could, you, I mean, you couldn't again storyboard. You couldn't do anything until you got all the actors in position, and then you just worked it out as you went along, because it was the only way you could see what was possible and what wasn't possible. Um, and then you had to trust that you would be able to get the uh, the special effects to give the sense of height. The actual the actual platform itself was moving, um, but the top shots when you see you know right uh, right into sort of eternity below uh, was you know you never you never knew until you actually. Uh, did all the opticals afterwards. Take my hand. Come on. You've won. Let him go. <laughs> Wonderfully sentimental, all of this, isn't it? So it's all, it's a bit, again, it's a bit like sort of George Bush's philosophy you're either for us or against us. Um, now he's getting everybody to be for us. It's anti-terrorist, this, you see. And Prince Baron's the first one to come alongside. Now this changes everything. <laughs> so, yeah, Flash Gordon, really, he, he reminds me rather of George Bush, actually. He, you know, like George Bush, he'd never been abroad before, so now he is in all these various planets. But, I mean, I don't know whether you saw... Um, President Bush actually walking into the Kremlin. I mean, his mouth open like a child, you know. And then later on, the cameras caught him. He was about to sign the, the nuclear proliferation, uh, anti-nuclear proliferation treaty, and they caught him taking a, a sweet out of his mouth. And there is a sort of childlike quality about him, which I find is very similar to Flash Gordon. Um, uh, and certainly his policies towards uh, cultures that he knows nothing about uh, are really bizarre, in my opinion, as bizarre this, as this film. This is the moment where um, Peter Wingard is about to ask me if, I, if he could just... Michael, if I could just lift the mask off before I die, would you mind? And I said, no, under no circumstances. This uh, set, which uh, Danilo built, which is wonderful, actually, um, was again a replica of of, uh, of of Alex Raymond's drawings of um, of the Hawkman's kingdom. Uh, and of course, it's there is a moment later on where um, where Ming arrives and uh, offers Flash the whole world. As I said earlier, um, and they're up in heaven as opposed to uh, with Jesus. Ooh, dear, oh dear, that is not Peter Wingard, and it's not surprising I didn't let him take his mask off. Anyway, now we're up. Here's Ming coming up. Just understand that when I was doing all of this, I, I really had no no idea what we were going to put against all this blue backing. I mean, it's just very strange looking back. We'll take them by surprise. And we can do it. Danilo came up with all these uh, uh, extraordinary hanging sort of armory kind of stuff, which is very clever. It's a very clever set, actually. 
in terms of that it, it helps make the uh, these wings work. They sort of fit in with it somehow or another. There had been a rather funny incident between me and uh, and uh, Prince Baron and and uh, Bultan when uh, Tim had said to me when he's arrested by the Hawkmen and brought in. I asked uh, Brian Blessed, who is the Vultan, the chief Hawkman, to get up on one of these pillars so that when he's brought in uh, Prince Baron. Um, he's down at level and he's been brought in by the two Hawkmen. And Tim complained that as they were both equal and they both had their own kingdoms, uh, Vultan should be at the same level, which I did find somewhat childish at the time and told him. So I, it, I, I sort of remember looking at myself thinking, well, I'm 52 years old. What on earth am I doing this insane film for? Uh, because it was so childlike. Uh, uh, and you had to deal often with uh, with children. Actors are often like children, aren't we all like children, but they're particularly like children playing the different roles. Um, Max is wonderful, I think, in this particular sequence. Look at how he commands that stage. He's such a great actor, even in this. Well, here's the moment now when he offers Flash the whole world, everything, and he can have his own kingdom in exchange. If only he will succumb to Ming's wishes. Offers Flash Gordon a kingdom of Mongol to rule over as his own. You're crazy. Why would you do that? Because I've never before met your like. You're a hero. It's a very funny moment before the uh, film started. And when we cast uh, Sam as Flash, and uh, Dino used to have meetings on Saturday mornings, which I slightly objected to. Anyway, um, one of these meetings, he called Sam in in my presence, and he says, Hey, Sam, a little diggy bird tells me you're staying out late. You know, when we start filming, you'll be look tired. You must look good for this film. Good, very important for your career. So... Uh, it's, he said, you go out tonight, Saturday night, last night out, let me start film. So the phone rings Sunday morning, the line producers on the line said, Flash, <laughs> Sam was attacked in Piccadilly, in Leicester Square last night. He'd gone to the cinema and when he'd come out, about five uh, yobbos had set upon him and split his lip. And I remember just saying there, Flash Gordon is attacked in Leicester Square, knocked down. This must not get out because he's our hero. We can't have that. I mean, and then, of course, seeing the Hawkman or something else I just remembered, actually, with Dino um, on one of the Saturday mornings. Uh, my sons, one of them played rugby, rugby football, which I know is very popular in France. Anyway, so I... Uh, I said to Dino I was cutting this meeting on Saturday morning short because I wanted to drive down to the country, which is about a two-hour drive, to watch rugby with my with my son. And England were playing Wales and they were going to get a terrible trouncing. I knew that. Anyway, in those days, rugby was an amateur sport. Um, you know, that they all the people who played it were dentists and doctors and lawyers and, you know, whatever. So 
the phone rings at half time and uh, there's the line producer saying, Dino wants to speak to me. So Dino comes, hey, Mike, you watch rugby? So I say, yeah. He says, hey, fantastic Hawkman. So he said, number 11, number 13, number 14. So I said, and they were all rugby players on the Welsh team. I said, which, which shirts you were talking about? He said, the red ones. So it was the Welsh team. And he, uh, he said, so they're all bearded men. So I said, Dino, you must understand that these men are all amateurs. They have professions. They're not going to spend six, six months dangling on wires while we turn them into Hawkmen. So that put paid to that one. So Dino was always coming up with these extraordinary ideas, but uh, again, there was a kind of naivety about, uh, about everything uh, to do with him. Uh, but it was always charming, nevertheless. But the idea of all these rugby players dangling on the end of Wales playing Hawkman was, uh, still haunts me. Then fight! But there's no way I can help a man who's dead! Yes, this is a pretty naff-looking thing, I must say, that one. Anyway, there we go, we did our best. This is Voltan. I read you. Where are you? Flying blind on a rocket cycle. Flying blind? I remember you saying you didn't like the seriousness of Star Wars and preferred the tongue-in-cheek of Flash Gordon. Uh, did I? Um... Or anti-Spielberg and... Yes, I'd, I'm not a great Lucas Spielberg fan, I must be honest. I don't know why. Um... Uh, well, Star Wars was so fun, I thought. I didn't, you know. I, I mean, I think that Flash is, uh, you know, is the real comic strip. I, I, I do think that. I think that Star Wars and the other, the other uh, films from uh, other, you know, I'm not quite what you'd call them, fantasy films, were, uh, were pure... Cinema, whereas I think this is this is very clearly based on on a comic strip. This again was a, just a totally improvised sequence. It's rather interesting. Sexuality again about it. It's the the textures of the scenes are so uh, <laughs> so interesting. Is this another trick, Aura? I like seeing how all these uh, characters are all won over to turn against Ming, actually. Bin Laden of our, of, of our day. I never knew what my father was until he let Clytus put the boar worms on me. I believe you, Aura. But I don't trust you. You have Ming's blood in you. So we're getting towards uh, Ming's desire for uh, again it's a sort of wonderfully idiotic uh thing that ming who has such enormous power is is so prosaic that he actually wants to go to the form of marriage i mean he could have, have dale anytime he likes but he's he wants to do it properly he's going to get married to her i must say i do find it pretty amusing i don't know about in France, but in England, uh, in the 60s, marriage was just finished. I and mean, basically, everyone just went to the registry office and so on. But now, nowadays, marriage is very big now in my own country. They have vast sums of money that people spend on their weddings, and the whole thing has, uh, has come back again. 
And the whole ritual, people who never go to church get married in church. So the whole, the whole process is, is, uh, is back in vogue again. And uh, I don't think it's anything to do with Flash Gordon, but uh, you never know. It may have affected people's opinion. It may have looked at Ming's marriage here and thought, hmm, I rather like that idea, actually. General Kala, Flash Gordon approaching. What do you mean? Flash Mariangela Malata are about to meet her demise. Shall I inform His Majesty? Imbecile! The Emperor would shoot you for interrupting his wedding with this news. Fire when she's sexy in her own way. Oh, she's very sexy. No, no, I think she's really. Did you ever see Swept Away? It's just been made, remade, hasn't it, with Madonna and Guy Ritchie? Apparently, it's terrible. But the original was fabulous, actually. I have to confess that sequences like this probably would be better done now. But most of these special effects work. I was, in, I was interested that when uh, Freddie Mercury died, uh, they didn't re-release the film. I thought they would have done. Um, It's interesting. I don't. I. I don't know whether the film is in trouble. I think it got in. There was when Dino went bankrupt. I'm not sure where the film ended. But I, it's always puzzled me. It's not being put out on the big screen because that's where it really should be. I mean, it's. It, it's you know on the big screen. It's really very. It's 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 pretty wonderful in terms of its. Uh, again, in terms of its gaudiness in, the, in a sort of rather bland world that we live in. It has a... It, it's wonderful. Look at that. My goodness. That's not bad, is it? Even on this little screen that I'm looking at. Oh. Hmm? There's a lot of optical printing. Yes, it's layer upon layer, actually. Frank. 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 Frank Van Der Veerk, who uh, really those days was on his own in terms of how to use blue backing, was was terrific. He really made quite a lot of breakthroughs because in those days you, you know you couldn't have smoke foreground and things like that because they couldn't they just couldn't get the opticals in behind. Um, and time and time again, I was pushing pushing my luck with the things that I was doing and. Frank always came up with, with the goods. It was really hard work I, for him, I'm sure. Um, uh, but again, it's, uh, you know, it's improvising. How do you, you... So you've got a sort of problem there in terms of, uh, of an optical, because if, if it's great with, the, with, the, with, the, uh, with Ming's spaceship hidden, so we just put it... Uh, and put all these clouds in front of it. So that's not an optical at all. It's just a model with with a smoke machine. The clouds really, the skies really come into their own in this sequence, it seems to me. They're sort of very apocalyptic um, and wonderful. I did enjoy uh, shooting this battle sequence. <laughs> <laughs> it's so preposterous, everyone getting out on the wing and all the rest of it, and the Hawkmen and, <laughs> uh, and so on. It was during this sequence that uh, Sam J. Jones uh, protested 
that uh, Flash would not, under any circumstance, hit a man from behind. And the music here is just carries this sequence. I mean, I think Queen did such a brilliant job with this music. It's so exciting, I think. <coughs> Pauline Kael called it a, a disco in the sky, actually. And uh, she, surprisingly, she wrote an incredibly long <coughs> and great review for this film, The Doyen of American Cinema Critiques. She loved it. She never liked any of my serious films. Probably understandable. But she certainly liked this one. Again, we just made this up as we went along. I mean, honestly, none of it was possible to storyboard. It was just, you know, whatever you had available, you just used, and you were as inventive as you possibly could be. I had great uh, special effects people, so I could, you know, I could just improvise and do things as I went along, where I placed the bomb, where I, you know, what, what would happen. And then there was always negotiations with stuntmen. There was one, one stuntman, I wanted a guy to fall off burning, and, you know, he wanted a thousand pounds to do it. So I said, no, I won't, I won't do that. I'll do something else then. So the whole point of this, uh, this sequence, really, is the, is the energy that the sequence has. It doesn't bear too much examination, as you can imagine. But with the music and everything going, it, it, it really has such a lot of life, I think, actually. So we're also coming to the end of the film. We had no idea how to end this film at all. Um, indeed, Danilo had built... There was one cartoon we'd all seen with a, with a lake, with a, an island in the middle of it. And uh, Danilo had built this set for the end of the film. I can't truthfully remember how it was meant to end, except that I went to the set and it was just hopeless. And uh, I called Dino and said it's not possible to uh, to use the set for the end and I mean Dino was was, was always terrific actually he understood that there was that it just was not feasible so I I just shot and I did various things which I would never used uh, I just experimented with things that I had there but there was no way and then I came up with this idea of when the marriage was sort of set and uh, of actually him being impaled it's like he's being uh, uh, Ming it right at the very end. The other interesting thing is that the music, uh, where Queen did, uh, uh, I suppose it was about 45 minutes of the track, or maybe less actually. And of course, one leaded a lot of other music, so we want, I wanted it orchestrated, taking the themes that they'd used. Um, and uh, we had they, they suggested a composer uh, or an arranger actually they the, the very famous rock arranger whom I won't mention and uh, so I finished my three weeks with Queen which was I was really in a state of complete exhaustion as I said earlier um, and I then went into music sessions with about a seventy-piece orchestra and I checked with the with this with the composer that he got all this work done. And we went in the first day, and he'd only written four and a half music minutes, and we had we needed about 45, 50 minutes of, of music. And it was all planned where it was. 
And the poor man had, uh, I don't know what had happened, but he just had not completed the, the work. So we had one session, then the following Monday we, we recorded a minute, and I got a message saying that he, he, he would want to meet me outside of the studio, and I said, no, uh, he must come in and talk to me. Um, and it transpired that he hadn't written the music. So I had to ring Dino up, and we had about ten sessions. I rather like this, I'm interrupting here for a second. Um, tell me more about this man, Houdini. Remind me about to come back to that in a minute. Anyway, so um, so we had about 10 sessions with 70 musicians, which we just had to cancel and pay for. So I suppose it was something like 20, 30,000 pounds worth of work just abandoned while we got another composer in to record it. And you ring Dino up and he would be totally philosophical about it. He was an extraordinary and then he'd be sort of very petty about some other tiny expense. He was obsessional about a painting that had been done of a sky and it had gone missing. And the, I know the painting cost $25,000 or somebody had done it for us and it was all kind of it was hopeless and useless. But he'd become obsessional like, about something like that, something rather petty. And, you know, when you're doing some... When these big music sessions were cancelled, he would just say, fine, we just get another composer. He was, he was extraordinary, I think. I, and what was great about working with Dino is you got decisions immediately. It's unlike, uh, you know, working with little big studios when there are committees. You just, you know, it's difficult to get decisions. So I really loved it in terms of if I wanted to do something, I'd tell Dino and I'd get a decision there and then. Um... Yes, so the music is uh, drove the whole of the 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 ending here. There was something else I was going to say. I forgot what it was actually. Will this do it? Yes, no doubt. There's a lightning field about a previous shot. Maybe. Oh yes, I know what it was. Yes, so there was a shot earlier where uh, uh, Prince Baron and Zarkov are on chains, and I added this line. In fact, there was another line before which I cut off, but the line is, tell me more about this man Houdini. <laughs> right, which is a sort of funny line because, uh, you know, he comes from, a, from another planet and, the, the, this, you know, obviously Zarkov had been telling him about this man who was an escapologist who could get out of any kind of situation. So he's asking this line. Dino heard this um, and... Say, why are you give him his speech? And I said, well, it isn't a speech exactly, Dino. Um, so he was, you know, if, if I added a line, I had a terrible fight with this with the studios about this line. All right, so I added this line, and, uh, you know, of course, it always got the biggest laugh in, in the whole uh, in the whole film, actually. Um, it was interesting, again, with, with uh, Dino, that because he took it so seriously, when we went to see Rush's, uh, every morning, the rushes of, of the dailies, as they say in America, which is the day's work, the film that you've worked, that you've done the day before. The crew, of course, would come in for these showings and they'd laugh a lot. And Dino would say, why they laugh? And so I had to ask the crew not to laugh because patently I was dealing, and I, you know, I, I didn't really want to upset Dino because, uh, but he was quite a long time realizing the, the pitch that the film was taking, actually. Here we are now at the end of the film, and uh, I think Brian May's parody of the wedding of uh, the wedding march is is absolutely brilliant piece of uh, of musicianship. Come on, it's time to bail out. Sorry, Bolton, I'm not coming. What? The rocket cycle's gone. So come on, I'll tell you. I had a great. Um, 
operator, I've worked with a camera operator called Gordon Heyman. Um, and this is the first film we made together. We'd done some commercials, and that's how I got to know him in the late 70s. Um, so I, I asked him if he'd be the operator on this film. The operator is more important to me than anybody else in the film. I, uh, the, the operator is your right arm as a director, and I. Uh, so Gordon and I had a, a, a great time. He even worked through on the second unit with me, um, and I've worked with him whenever I possibly can. Strange enough, he also did a lot of films with Nick Rogue. He did Eureka, Man, Man Who Fell to Earth. And I, he didn't do Don't Look Now, but um, so Gordon and I have always had this relationship. It reminded me of that when we were shooting that, he was vibrating the camera um, to give the effect of, of, uh, of this, uh, of the spaceship rocketing through uh, towards Ming's palace. Take us to Ming. We do not lead traitors. The editing is very interesting. Again, uh, it was the first time I'd worked with uh, the editor, Malcolm Cook. Um, he did various other films for me later on, like Black Rainbow. Um, and this was the first film. He is a, he's a wonderful editor. I mean, he, he, he really uh, moves so smoothly that... Uh, that uh, that it might not have done, but he—he's—he's he's exceptional. Sadly, he's no longer with us, but he um, did a very good job, I think, with us looking at it again. Where are the atomic generators? There's no time. They're six miles underground. I'm heading for Sector Alpha Nine. Hold the fort. And there's something like 300 special effect shots in the film. <laughs> I believe you. Oh, there's one of them. Um, Yes, get, someone was telling me where have we got that body pumped up to get all the let all the ink come out. But there's 300 special. Oh, that's not much, is it these days? Which is it? It's not much, but it was more than Empire Strikes Back. R really, good heavens! Where do you find all these information? <laughs> Again, in, you know, improvisation and just using what was uh, available. Once you got the sort of hang of it all. It got easier and easier because once you knew you could lay these computerized, well, not these, these not these special, these opticals on the on firing all the rest of it, then it became something else. Um, and you, so all the fight sequences and the shoot-ups and everything became uh, simpler. I think that's Philip Locke on the left, who you would remember from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, actually. Who plays the the priest who who lost who's lost the ring? Remember him in The Shining? Not to blast her into space until such time as you grow weary. Yeah, earlier there was a a, a shot with a, a spaceship pulling a message saying, uh, "I think it's the first one." I think says, "You will enjoy yourself. Enjoy your, You will enjoy yourself." And then another little rocket ship goes past under pain of death. And the studio, for some reason, wanted me to take this. I have absolutely no idea what it was. But the head of the studio got, had a preoccupation with this, with this little sequence. And it always, it never got a great laugh, but it was always a quiet little joke. And I just wouldn't take it out. I, you know, you're making a children's film and everyone's acting like a, 
were acting like children. It was just bizarre, this business of trying to get... Uh, to keep it in. I couldn't I couldn't see the reason for taking it out, so I refused to do it. And then you begin to wonder about your sanity. If you're fighting over something as daft as that. Freeze! Deactivate the lightning field. So this is the ending that we came up with in the end. I truthfully don't remember. I mean, this is for real, the actual ship coming hitting the, uh, coming into the palace. Uh, I, I can't remember. I re seem to recollect that, that it was my idea that this was the only possible way to end the film. Um, that if you, you literally, you get, <laughs> you get buggered at your own wedding. Um, it, it's like a sort of rape, really, of Ming. And I sort of, it sort of fitted in with all the other kind of sexual innuendos in the film. And I, but I truthfully don't remember how I convinced Dina that, that this was the only way to, 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 to end the film. It's rather wonderful, as you're looking at it again, I must say. Not, what colour blood have we got there? Black, it looks like, isn't it? I think it's black blood for Ming. Did Lorenzo sample... Junior oh. contributes the major elements of the. Film. Well, I mean, he did. He wrote the Lorenzo. Of course, I forgot Lorenzo Sample Junior wrote uh, Batman, all the Batman TV uh, in America, and he he uh, he really did understand the comic strip uh, elements of it. So he gave us the rudiments of 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 the of the of the storyline and the script certainly, and and apart on all the dialogue apart from. Uh, the odd line which I'd pop in. Um, so, yes, of course, Lorenzo uh, contributed immensely. And that's when Dino thought that there may be a, a sequel, which I, he'd asked me to do in the first place. Not to be. Glad you made it, Voltan. Better late than never! <laughs> Dale! Look out, Flash! What? Don't move! Stay where you are! So now, the end of the... The actual end of the film, again, was uh, an idea that I had, because I mean, you could only, you know, work these things out as you went along, truthfully. Uh, and this goes back to my own childhood, where we have this strange institution in Britain called Christmas Pantomime, which is bizarre because when you're a kid uh, all the male leads like the prince prince baron will be played by a woman so this woman will come out in very sexy stockings and and all the the wem, the women the old the old witches and things are all played by men so you had this kind of sexual sort of switcheroonie which is a young person is <laughs> very confusing and this is pure pantomime. This is straight out of the end of the pier, you know, uh, I don't know. sort of end of the end of the pantomime uh, show. Um, and it was the only way that I could think of uh, adding the final denouement to this picture. Uh, it's a little too quiet around here for me. And then, of course, the again, it was back to my childhood when they used to do these aero shows and they'd sort of spell people's letters and smoke and things like that. So that came to me from that. So 
flash thanks. Well, I must say, Frank did save the day, but I don't know what would have happened if we could pull that off. <laughs> ah, there's the sequel, that's right. In case... Hmm, question mark. So I did a... Uh, my second film was a film called Pulp, actually, which was about a writer. It was called... Originally, it was called um, Memoirs of a Ghost Writer, and he's a terrible writer, and you see him typing, and at the end of it, he mistypes the end, so it's typed on the screen, it goes, the emph. Um, so I see, obviously remembered that, and that's when I put the question mark on the... Uh, on the end of the... Uh, film, but no sequel was made.